Every now and then, I meet someone who's changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurous, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. All right. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with Paul Wheaton. Paul runs the sites permies.com and richsoil.com, which provide information on permaculture theory, sustainable gardening, and homesteading. And much of the information is given out in free ebooks and courses. In his recent book, Building a Better World in Your Backyard Instead of Being Angry at Bad Guys, he provides decades of knowledge on energy conservation, sustainable living, and gardening. All perfect activities for a quarantine. Well, thanks for joining me, Paul. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This is fun. <laughs> yeah, man. I'm excited. I'm excited. So in this book and your sites that you own, um, it kind of focuses on a lot of things people can do that they might not know too much about that help the environment. So could you start by explaining some of the basics, maybe start with permaculture in the simplest terms? All right. So I think if you ask any different permi, they're going to have a different answer to what is permaculture. And so I am but one permi, and my answer is permaculture is a more symbiotic relationship with nature so that I can be even lazier. How's that? <laughs> Not two shabs, huh? No, no, that's perfect. That was a lazy I man's definition, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it sounds like it's, it's almost a hands-off approach to gardening. Almost a hands-off approach to living sustainably. If you, if you I I think that there's a lot of. I mean, if I think most of us come to permaculture from the world of gardening. Gotcha. Um, we just get we get more and more obsessed with gardening, and then next thing you know, we find that a lot of the things that we're doing are in the world of permaculture. But permaculture is about not just horticultural endeavors, but also natural building, alternative energy, um, and and then it's kind of like a bizarre thing. That when you when you study permaculture enough, that one day you kind of have this feeling of a big click, and hmm. you realize, oh wow, I have been going about this all backwards, and now all my life I've been walking backwards, and now I'm going to find forwards, and this is so much easier. So it, once you kind of see how it all fits together, then you kind of go this other way. And, uh, and, and I, I, that sounds like a possibly a great thing, but it also leads to a lot of divorce. <laughs> oh, yeah, so, so both parties will be like, we're both into permaculture. And then suddenly one of them goes, click. <laughs> All right, I'm not gone. <laughs> I, I have to go live out in the country now, and I have to grow three acres of garden, and I have to build my own home, and I have to do all these things. And then the other, the other uh, spouse is kind of like uh, – Wait, 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 wait. I like talking about this stuff and living this way and everything, but uh, uh, I I like being in the city where we've got like that really great Chinese restaurant and stuff, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so it's kind of like in Splitsville. Oh, <laughs> uh, I take it we're not talking from personal experience. <laughs> oh, I would I would say that I have seen this happen oh, okay. to I don't know, hundreds of people. It's, it's a powerful thing. It's, but you know, the, the, it all starts, but we, we're going to start off simply, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about some simple, basic things that's for everybody. And, um, 
And then it's up to you whether or not you're going to, how far down this rabbit hole you're going to go. Right. Yeah. And you, in the book, you outline you know, kind of the steps that it takes. So I'm not sure if you could do that here, just like walking through, I guess, the steps that someone would take and maybe outlining when <laughs> the splitsville might happen. <laughs> Hypothetically, <laughs> of course. Oh, wow. Um, well, in part of the book, there's a tool that I share um, that I created, I don't know, like nine years ago or something. And uh, it's been, it's turned out to be this very powerful, very useful tool that has kind of grown its own legs and run away into the world to do its own thing. And now all kinds of people are using this tool in all kinds of ways I'd never even thought of before. Is it what I think it is? I, I The Wheaton Eco Scale. There you go, and, yeah. And so you need to come up with the plat eco-scale. Eco Trust me, it's easy to make a scale. The, <laughs> the, the, the key is is that everybody makes their own scale. And because uh, I, I couldn't make the eco-scale because I'd have all these people telling me that I made it wrong. Right, right of course. And so if you, call it, if, you give it, if you give it your own name, then it's like, well, I can make it as twisted and weird as I want. <laughs> you know? And if you don't like it, you go make your own scale. Yeah, that's fine. So, so I made this thing. And... Uh, uh, and it's, I had a, I had a very important reason at the time that I made it. I was, I was struggling to make a point. And so I needed to make the scale so I could make my point. And at the time, uh, a woman had written a column for a Portland, Oregon uh, daily newspaper trying, or she's trying to go green. And after a year, uh, she gave up the column because she was receiving death threats. Yeah, I remember and, reading this, yeah. Yeah, and so I needed a way to express how we need to go about this. So I, what I wanted to do was say something to the world, and hopefully it'll reach the person making the death threats hmm. of like, okay, you want, you want the woman writing the, the column to say your thing, and she won't say your thing, and so you're you're sending her death threats, right? Yeah, it was all about <laughs> people so, wanting her to to talk about a certain thing, and she wasn't mentioning that, or to live a certain way. Right, right. Now that you've chosen to go down this path, you are now the puppet of ten thousand right. different puppeteers yeah. who all want you to go in different directions, and uh, you can't please them all. Therefore, one of them is going to choose to kill you, <laughs> and it's like, uh, well, that's awkward. That's awkward. So. <laughs> so the, the the thing it is, I made the Wheaton Eco Scale, and uh, basically the idea we start with the idea that there's six billion people at level zero, there's one billion at level one, there's a hundred million at level two, ten million at level three, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then you get to level nine, and there's ten people, and then at level ten, there's one person. <laughs> yes. And then it's like, okay, now let's talk about the attributes of these people. The, the people at level zero, where there's six billion, they don't care about the environment, and uh, that's that's fine. They they get they have that option. They've opted in for the I don't care about the environment package, hmm. and so so fine. Uh, not my personal choice, but uh, but they've chosen that. At level one are people that have decided that they are for the environment. And that they want to do their part to help, and so they're going to uh, probably start off with those stupid light bulbs. But yeah. <laughs> okay, they're they're convinced. It says right on the package, good for the environment. So this is they're 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 going to buy their way into environmentalism. 
And it's like, then you get to level two and uh, at level four, they kind of realize those light bulbs were the wrong light bulbs. They're actually an environmental disaster. And uh, anyway, <clears throat> I, I kind of feel like it was about uh, three or four years ago that I augmented the scale with the thing about dandelions, which I think is brilliant. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to abuse this opportunity Please. to share the dandelion thing. So at level zero, people spray poison on the dandelion. They, are, they, they fear it. Right. That dandelion uh, uh, violates what I'm trying to do here. And I've bought weed death. And here's weed death unto you. So uh, people at level two, they pull the dandelions. People at level four eat the dandelions. Mm. All parts of the dandelion are edible. In fact, the dandelion came to the United States as a food crop. Huh. Um, now, I, I'm going to suggest that even though the stems are edible, that people not eat the stems. Eat the blossom, eat the leaves, eat the roots. No problem. But I would suggest people not eat the stems. But still, food crop. People wow. eat it. People at level four eat it. People at level six swap seeds with their friends for the, <laughs> to get the best possible dandelion. <laughs> ah, nice. Like a Grateful Dead show. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly like that, only completely different. <laughs> <laughs> Just the recordings. The, yeah, swapping recordings. <laughs> so I, the, the key is, is that um, uh, a lot of people who are probably listening to this right now have probably already transitioned to pulling the dandelions mm -hmm. and probably um, the idea of eating them is a bit, sounds a bit bizarre. Yeah. And so uh, let alone intentionally planting the seeds. And that's kind of like why I felt like on the, on the back of the book, isn't there a little boy yep. blowing yeah. on a dandelion seed head? I, I kind of feel like it's so representative because that's such a joyful thing to do to, to blow on a dandelion seed head. But, but it, when you're at level zero, you hate it. It's yeah, like spreading the seeds. Somebody, somebody blowing on a dandelion seed head—that's unthinkable. That's that's like you want to you want to stab that child. Right. right. <laughs> no. <laughs> but in the world of permaculture, it's like no. This is amazing. Thanks, kid. You're you're helping out. You're you're helping to increase our food crops. And I could spend two hours talking about what a valuable plant the dandelion is. It's such a great poster child for permaculture. But <clears throat> uh, my impression is you have a few more questions for me. But I, I think we started off with like, uh, um, you know, what is this chart? Like the chart exists. Oh, oh, the chart exists. Then there was the thing about the, the woman who wrote the column. Right. And so yeah. the, two, the two things I needed to make as observations. So we've got the chart. There's the, there's the scale. And it's like there's two observations. First observation, no matter where you are on the scale, anybody that's one level up seems cool. Somebody who's two levels up seems really cool. <laughs> Somebody three levels up seems crazy. And that they should probably, something should be done to protect us from them and to protect them from them. <laughs> okay, now that's, that's observation one, right? Right. Observation two. Anybody that's behind you on the scale is screwing everything up. Right. Stop that. 
Stop it now! Yeah! Stop it, or I'll hit you with this stick! <laughs> All right, these are observations. And the thing I wish to express is that I'm uncomfortable with our human nature on either of these things. And so the number one thing that extracting those two observations is to say, if you are reading this column and you wish to make a suggestion to the author of the column, do not tell the author of the column about something that's three levels ahead. That will gotcha. seem crazy. Instead, tell them about things that are one or two levels ahead. Now, a, a wonderful example is Sepulter. He's at level 10. He is adamant that when you raise animals, make sure to plant lots of poisonous plants in the paddock with the animals. Right. Now, I'm thinking that everybody is thinking that sounds crazy. And so there's, there's the example. He says plant lots of poisonous plants, and everybody's thinking like, well, then they'll eat the poisonous plants and they'll die, right? <clears throat> and it's, and it's kind of like, uh, actually, there's more to it. But wait, there's um, more. Yeah. But, but, but wait, <laughs> and that's not all. You also get these knives. <laughs> um, so uh, the, the, the key is, is that uh, uh, animals have instincts that are stronger than ours. So, uh, Brian, if I hold up a piece of a dead deer, roadkill deer that's a week old, and I hold it up in front of you, and I'm within three feet of you, does your instinct tell you, put that in my pie hole? <laughs> no. Does <not>. No! No. <laughs> your instinct says, ah, I'm going to barf. Keep that away from me. I'm going to run away from you. You've gotten too close to me with that already. Okay. Now, on the other hand, if I hold up a plate of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies, your instinct will say, Yes, please. Absolutely. <laughs> that goes in my pie hole. Right. In fact, I'll take the whole plate. Just let me hold that for you. That looks like <laughs> that's a heavy plate. I'll, I'll just hold that for a moment. Yeah, that's your, that's your instinct. That's your instinct. So now, Sep is saying that those animals in the paddock, they, their instinct is about a thousand times stronger than ours. And so when they're in the paddock, and they approach this poisonous plant, their instinct says, don't eat that. I mean, they can smell it. And they're like, oh, yeah, I don't want to eat that. No. Uh -uh. And then instead, I'm going to eat this other stuff over here, which smells really good and delicious, and I'm going to eat it. And then, then one day, oh, no. Oh, no. Got a little tummy ache. Oh. Ugh. Ugh. Now, today, that plant that smelled yucky yesterday now it smells kind of good. It's like, I just, I just need to eat a little bit of that. I need to just, they're self-medicating. Right. That, that poisonous plants. I mean, all of our medications are poison. They're all poison. If you eat enough of any one medication, you will die. Right. And so a <clears throat> uh, uh, tip, <laughs> don't. There you go. I'm glad we had this chat. All right. <laughs> well, it's true. Like like dogs, when they're sick, they go out and they eat certain strands of grass, or sometimes they'll lick salt water because um, they will either set up their stomach or will bring whatever's right out there. Will bring it bring it up. Um, right. So that which makes sense. I mean, there are 
animals are around poisonous things all the time. They're not dropping dead because of those things. They know to avoid them. Now, here's the important thing. I said that people are going to find people far enough ahead to be crazy, like super crazy. Right. And so I said, Seth Poulter says, plant poisonous plants and with your, so it sounds crazy until, of course, you hear the explanation. But it sounds crazy if you don't hear the explanation. And, of course, Seth Poulter is going to say a thousand things, and they're probably going to mostly sound really crazy until you get far enough along on, on the scale or uh, you, you take the time to learn what he's talking about. Right, because I think most people, and I'm probably guilty of this too, who find themselves are environmentalists are probably around level one or level two not really far along, you know, in your scale. And then someone, you know, you hear about someone like Sepp Holter, which I think you should just kind of chat about him for someone who doesn't know, but he does. He's very far out. And I've just learned about him relatively recently. Um, but yeah, he's just so, you know, so many levels above most people who consider themselves environmentalists that they do think he's crazy or at least oh, some of the things they say, he says before they research it. And I think a lot of people also believe that while they might be a firm level two, like they are really doing a lot of stuff, <laughs> that, that the whole that the whole scale ends at three. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. That's it. That's as far as it goes. And then further, <clears throat> when the when the videographers came and made the movie about Sep, then they edited it in such a way so that it would seem awesome to level two people. So they left a lot out. They, they edited out anything that would seem crazy, right? I see, yeah. Because they did the right thing. They did that. They recognize, they didn't exactly look at the scale. They didn't have the tool, um, you know, the, of the wheat and eco scale, but they, they did have like some, some thought about like, what's going to be the most marketable. Sure. And it's like, let me, sh let me talk about this guy who lives in the Alps and, He's got all these ponds and he's, and look at all the beauty that's growing there. And uh, he's got all these animals and he moves them around like this. And uh, this is, this is his thing. This yeah. is what he's into, you know, and this is what he does. And people love, people come and think that he's like a superhero. Look at all these people who arrive and are like, man, this guy is the best. And uh, you know, that's all very, the level two people are like, wow, cool, neat. But if we start talking about like, hey, plant those poisonous plants and with those animals, huh? Yeah. They, they, they edited that out. <laughs> no, I don't think they're ready for that one. <laughs> Got to ease them in a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm always curious about like someone's arc, like how they became where they are. Um, how did you like you start, you, you know, years ago, you were a software engineer. And now here you are pretty much, well, the Duke of permaculture. Like you're, you're a big deal. How did you get from, you know, kind of an engineering style of life to this? I know there's a lot of probably parallel thinking that's involved, but I'm just curious about how that arc happened. You know, you'd think that being the Duke of permaculture would have like theme music or something. You know? Yeah, we'll, we'll set up with some, uh, <laughs> some organs in the background or something. <laughs> So, uh, some organs, oh, wow. <laughs> I don't know what's the most dramatic <laughs> instrument. <laughs> so, um, I was in, 
1994, I became uh, horribly, uh, bizarrely obsessed with gardening. Hmm. And I read 100 gardening books that year. And uh, the weird thing is, is that I'd, I'd come out with this, I'd come out with this software package that became an overnight success just a few months earlier. It was doing great. And I really should focus on that. But I, I just couldn't. I needed to feed this new obsession about gardening. I, I couldn't stop myself. Now, eventually, hmm. fall came and uh, the snow came and, and the gardening was over. And I went back to focusing on this software product that was massively successful. And yay! So um, uh, time passed. And um, uh, that, okay, so that was 1994. So 10 years later, it's 2004. And I am an architect for the ground systems for the spacecraft that takes pictures pictures for Google Earth. Right. Wow. And I'm working on this project, and I'm doing really great. I'm having a great time. Everything's good. But I've still got this obsession about gardening, which has since evolved into permaculture. And I kind of see where I want the world to go. <clears throat> that I can see a path where one person can guide the whole world into positive change. Hmm. And I can't find anybody else to stick this job onto. <laughs> <laughs> I tried. I found some, and I said, hey, wouldn't you want to go and burr, 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 And they're like, no, I got my own thing I'm doing. So, <laughs> No. Why don't you do it? Because I got a job and I got to do my job. I mean, so finally it came down to like, I quit my very successful career. Right. And it's because I just, I just had to do this. And, um, and it, a lot of it is doing the research to prove that certain techniques work. Um, and a lot of it is, is like trying to connect it into brains, uh, you know, and so it makes a difference. And so basically, I feel like right now I am sitting on the solution to solve everything. Uh, not, well, maybe I shouldn't say everything. I am sitting on the solution to solve most global problems. A lot of things, yeah. I, I believe that to be true. And the thing that is slowing it down is getting this stuff into the heads of a hundred million people. Yeah, getting those so now, level twos to level fours to level sixes. Sure. Getting level sure. up. Let me let me now ask you a question. Oh, okay. Okay. Sure. You've you have read my book. Mm -hmm. If a hundred million people had read the book. Would most global problems, including climate change, go away? Yeah, they would go away or they'd be severely mitigated. You, in the book, you'd say, how many, talk about how many issues are created through energy consumption and energy usage. Right. Um, which is true. I mean, wars, pollution. I mean, those are probably two of our biggest things right now. And it's arguable you can even throw... You know, kind of COVID issues in there as well. Um, sure. Yeah, I do think so. Um, you, Good. You go really deep into how someone not only can conserve energy, but can 
generate their own. Save money, still live a luxurious life. So I do think we would you'd make a pretty severe dent on the issues that we see today. Thank you, sir. You're now, welcome. And I, I would say that even if you weren't on the line. <laughs> <for sure. laughs> um, and and so the, the only thing that's stopping me is like, okay, now, how do I get this information into 100 million brains? And I feel like the book is pretty thin. It's we. I worked hard to, to compress it from a 47-volume set down to one right. thin book. Right. And and I think I I think I pulled off you know making it an easy read. Like when you sat down to read it, did you like have to force yourself to read it, or did you have to force yourself to stop reading it? Yeah, it was really nice. It was very is a very easy read in the fact that I could pick it up, put it down, and I could even enact things that were in it. So yeah, I think it's you know about a clocks in about 150 pages, but every word, every phrase is used you know. Usable. It's something that I can enact, even though I don't have, you know, even though I don't have a backyard myself. Right. Right. And, and so <clears throat> you're going to, I mean, the first half of the book is for people that, for all people, whether they, they live in an apartment without a balcony or they have, you know, 200 acres. Right. The first half of the book is for everybody. And then the second half of the book is stuff for people that have a, small backyard, a big backyard, or, you know, something bigger than that. And, and it's like, as much as it's for those people, I think that if that information goes into the brain of an apartment dweller, that that'll, that still makes it so that uh, the world gets uh, improved dramatically. Yeah, just that knowledge <laughs> transfer is huge. Just knowing that these things exist, just just knowing that that's a thing, that that's a, a, a plausibility, um, makes it so that we are on track for solving more problems. And to me, it's so frustrating. Uh, some movie will come out and it's like, oh, well, uh, you know, carbon in the atmosphere is now over 400 parts per million. There's no going back now yeah. we're it's, it's over yeah <clears throat> and it you know if you think you're gonna do something why don't you go out there and check your tire pressure that'll help and and i'm kind of thinking like the recipes that they give are either about being angry at somebody which that's a rigged playing field mm -hmm. i'm glad that there are people out there being angry and it's kind of like at the same time I don't think that's going, I either think that that's not going to work or it's not going to be enough. Yeah, I don't think it's as efficient as a lot of people think it is. Just being angry, it doesn't inspire as much change as the way you've laid your book out. Very positive and very, uh, very hopeful. I think that I've, I've made a recipe so that even if people don't do all the things in the book, if it's just in their head, then uh, everything gets far better. We, we have dramatic positive change. So um, I, I kind of feel like the, the things that people suggest are weak, are so weak. Yeah. And it's clear that they don't know this stuff, this simple stuff. I mean, I think the things in my book, I would guess that half the things in my book 
were things that were probably like once I pointed it out, you're like, well, that makes yeah. sense. Well, of course. What are some you know, examples of the most common misconceptions you see or just the, the weak mentality you see that, that really wouldn't help much? Because you in the book, you talk about how to live a better life, a cheaper life, but not about sacrifice. And a lot of people are, you know, they're not willing to sacrifice, but you offer alternatives that can still help environmental issues. Yes. I, I like to think that everything, that there's nothing in the book about sacrifice. There's yeah. zero. Yeah. That everything in there either makes your life more luxuriant or it puts a lot of money in your pocket. Yes. And uh, I, I kind of feel like the, the simplest thing, the thing that anybody in any apartment can do and they can start today, they can start immediately and I just kind of feel like it's such a great example for the other things in the book because it's so simple. And, um, and that is the whole no soap, no shampoo. Hmm. And I mean, in the shower. So like, go ahead and use soap. That's great. Wash your hands. Wash them again. Wash them some more. That's great. Now notice how your hands are kind of super dried out. <laughs> and it's kind of like, but that's what, that's what soap's job is, is, is to make it so that the oils on on you, your oils, any oil can be emulsified in water. That's its job. That's its function. Huh. So it it turns out that ninety nine percent of your body fun because you don't take a shower to remove oil, you take a shower to get rid of your body funk. You know, yeah. it's 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 like when you go out into society, you want those people to know that you don't stink. You're gonna, you want to hide your hide your dirty little secret, <laughs> and a shower totally fixes that. Dun da da da! Look, I showered and I'm wearing fresh clothes. I do not stink. <laughs> Let's not talk about the moments before the shower. Let's talk about now. So it's oh, shower only. That's that's the thing we're shooting for. But even more than that, <clears throat> people who have traveled this path have reported that they have thicker, more luxuriant hair, and their skin is um, much healthier skin. And, and so they're reporting strong, positive health side effects of eliminating soap and shampoo in the shower. Oh, but wait, there's more. This turns out to be the number one thing that you can do to reduce hot water. Now, a lot of people, the average American shower is eight and a half minutes. And then there's people that are like, oh, man, I know that the shower is the thing that's using up most. It's, it's the biggest hot water impact. So I'm going to take a colder shower or I'm going to take a shorter shower. I'm going to force myself to uh, shower so quickly that I come out itchy because there's still shampoo in my hair. Um, I'm going to, you know, so people will do all these things to try and reduce sacrifice. They're focused on sacrifice. But now if you travel this path, your shower is a little over a minute long. And after about a minute and a half, you are bored stupid. You've got nothing left to do. You've done all, you've scrubbed all the things. You brought it up the washcloth and you did this scrubby, scrubby, scrubby. And it's kind of like, all right, well, now what? There's nothing. You're done. <laughs> so do you so, recommend people use a substitute 
um, you know, I know a lot of people use like honeycombs or something. <sighs> You're familiar with this. I am oh, good. A bit, oh, good. Sure. Oh, good. So, uh, some people do try other interesting things, but I think the first thing to do is to go a week with nothing, with hmm. just water. And go ahead, make that water as hot as you want. I mean, you're, you're, you went from a seven and a half minute or an eight and a half minute shower down to a little over a minute. You can have all the luxury coupons you want when it comes to showering now. Shower twice as often. You're still using less hot water. So, um, uh, so now you're going to go in there and, shower and, and, and it's like, yes, uh, just try it with nothing for one week. It, it seems like a lot of people start feeling pretty grimy on the third day, but it's, it's, it's actually the residue of the shampoo is attracting more dirt. And so just keep showering with, with no soap or shampoo. And by the end of a week, that's all passed. And suddenly it's like, man, you're a sex guy. Wow. You look good. <laughs> hey baby. <laughs> so, millions of people on the internet have talked about this. And so don't trust me. Go look on the internet. Go find all these other people that have experimented with it. Now, granted, it's not for everybody. It's just for damn near everybody. <laughs> I mean, I, I've, I have a hard time finding anybody who gave it an authentic try and it didn't work out. Now, granted, much like what you're saying, some people um, – uh, add in something else. Some people do vinegar. Some people do baking soda or something like that. But but mm -hmm. most of those people end up at zero. End up at using nothing at all. Oh, other than other than what? <clears throat> well, I'm not sure that it's wean themselves off, but they want to experiment. I mean, part of it is they're so used to using something in the shower, right. having some sort of product. Now, I got to tell you, when you travel, you know what's great is you don't have to go look in the bathroom to go see what you're forgetting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, here's here's another bizarre side effect. After about three months of doing this, you don't need pit stick anymore. Pit stick? Yeah, uh, you don't stink anymore. I mean, <clears throat> before, you had like this chemical thing that was like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in and poison all the stinky things and stuff and keep those at bay. I'm just going to have this anti-stink poison sitting in my armpits, uh, you know, throughout the day. And it's going to make it so I don't stink. It'll, it'll hide my stinky secret. But actually, it turns out it was kind of causing the problem. It didn't you know? come from a marketing campaign. I know, like, deodorant in, like, the 50s, I think, started with a marketing campaign. It wasn't a thing before then. I think a lot of this did. Yeah, a lot of this sure. Did. Yeah, yeah. I think soap is a valuable thing. Like if, if you're out there, uh, uh, if you're cooking and, uh, and you've got oil on your hands, soap is great at getting the oil off of your hands. If, mm -hmm. uh, if you're doing some mechanican, mm -hmm. soap mm -hmm. is great at getting the oil off of your hands. Um, but, but yeah, it turns out, because a lot of your soaps and shampoos, they come with like an oil to put back after it's stripped your natural oils away. Oh, weird. I didn't know that. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, you know, there's the commercials for the soap, and it's like it's one-quarter moisturizer. Right. Yeah. So it's it's trying to put the oil back that it just took away. I mean, I'm sure you've washed your hands with soap and felt like my fingers now feel like, like, like finger jerky. 
Like it's a, uh, they're all dried up and like, wow, that is an odd feeling. And then you go and you use some other soap and it's kind of like, Ooh, it, it, my fingers don't feel that way anymore. It feels like soft and supple now. And so <clears throat> it's because of the moisturizers. And of course, then people will oftentimes use conditioner after they use shampoo. Right. So, um, and what does that do? Well, it puts a lot of those oils back, but it also puts back a type of oil that attracts dirt in a big way. So um, now you go buy more product. How smart is that? Who is, who is that clever bastard? <laughs> that is genius. That's like putting salt in bottled water so you're thirstier, so you drink more of it. <laughs> <laughs> what about what things that people think that they're doing um, that aren't really having an impact on the environment at all? Oh, okay. Well, we talked, we kind of hinted at it earlier. Yep. Uh, people go and they buy the light bulbs and it says right on the package that it's good for the environment. And, um, and it's like, you know, there, there is a slim chance that it is good for the environment. And there is this narrow area where you do save energy. Um, and, but it's like, uh, I I live in Montana, and I imagine that most of the people that are listening to this live in a colder climate, and they actually have to do heat. Mm -hmm. And so, <clears throat> um, I'm going to state, I mean, whether it's going to be an LED bulb or a CFL bulb, that I can save more energy with an old school incandescent bulb. And it's like, but wait, right on the light bulb, it says these use less energy. And it's like, yeah, that's called marketing. Yep. It's a form of, it's a form of lying. And, uh, and there is a lot of misinformation on those packages, but, um, uh, and I've conducted experiments. I put them up on YouTube showing things, but skippity skip, skip past all of that. <clears throat> the big thing is, is that when do we need uh, light and it's generally we need more light in the winter time because the days are shorter which happens to be the same time that we need heat now there are three kinds of heat there's convective heat which is where we heat the air and the air heats us this is the most common type of heat in the united states uh, and then there's radiant heat and so radiant heat is where there is a warm thing and we have line of sight of it and we can feel the heat on whatever part of us is facing that radiant heat source so like if i'm looking right at it i can feel it on my front but my back is cold right okay all right this is radiant heat it is a rather efficient form of heat it's more efficient than convective heat the third type of heat is the most efficient this is conductive heat. So there could be something that's warm and we touch it. And then the warmth of the thing is passed into us. And that requires very little energy to make us feel warm. Okay. A light bulb puts out a lot of radiant heat. Now it could be conductive heat, but I, I really think you shouldn't touch it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But <clears throat> that would work. <laughs> But let's not do that. Let's skip that for now. Radiant heat. So it's so basically you can be in a room and let's say in this room there are five light bulbs and they are near you and they're pointed at you. 
but the room is 50 degrees. So the air temperature in the room, when you have a thermometer over against the wall over there, it says 50. But with nothing but these light bulbs, you feel perfectly comfortable. You feel like it's 70 or 75 in the room. Gotcha. In, okay. fact, in fact, it feels so warm. You're like thinking, I'm going to turn some of these lights off or I'm going to move them a little further away or whatever. But now these are, let's say that these are 540-watt bulbs. So this is 200 watts. Now, your uh, electric baseboard heater uses 3,000 watts. And you've got one in every room. And so it's kind of like, all right, so if I've got electric heat, but I'm going to, to you know, wherever I go, lights are going to come on. They're going to be pointed at me, let's say. And they're only on and pointed at me when I'm there in the room. And so I feel warm wherever I go. Now, of course, that's might to some people sound really silly, but it's kind of like, well, do you run laps in your house? Is that how you do this? Like you're just constantly on the move? Or like I'm going to watch a show. I'm going to sit down and watch a show. Or I'm going to sit at a desk right. and I'm going to do some stuff on the internet. <clears throat> Don't worry. I'm not going to tell anybody what you're doing on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> not, it's not like that. It's not like that at all. So, but uh, the thing is, is while you're sitting at your desk, then um, you can have, in fact, this is what I've demonstrated in a YouTube video and I've written articles and it's in the book, dog bed heater at your feet, right. a, a little heat mat that uh, goes underneath your keyboard and mouse and a single 40 watt electric uh, light bulb, uh, uh, incandescent light bulb above your head on a swinging arm lamp. You can move it as close or as far as you want. And so this works out to about 82 and a half watts total. Wow, and man. you, if your whole house is 50 degrees, you feel perfectly warm and comfortable. Now, at your couch, you do something similar. Only you'll probably have the dog bed heater at your feet and the lamp over your head. And you might have like a little um, throw blanket on your lap. And uh, you feel perfectly warm and comfortable. Yeah, it's, uh, it's about heating the individual instead of the entire house. Exactly. Now... I've seen a lot of people who have talked about like, you know, they're in a, they're in a financial pickle and uh, they live someplace cold and they are very, very, they've been turning the thermostat down and it's unbearable. And they're, they're still paying more for heat than what I paid in that year that I did the experiment. And, and I was heating a much larger space than what they were in. And, uh, and I was perfectly comfortable luxuriantly comfortable and uh it was very very simple very basic and i think i've proven it in a bunch of ways so many other people have now gone and uh, uh repeated the experiment and shown that it works simple basic and i think this is what you're asking for is um like what something that people believe is uh, good for the environment or good for carbon footprint or right. good for this. And it turns out not so much. And on top of that, I think that the things I just told you about, you already knew to some degree. Is that fair? Yeah, to some degree. There's definitely misconceptions. But yeah. all, I've, all I've done is connect some dots. Right. And, and it's like, and now, you, you know, 
Is it fair to say that you know that what I'm saying is true? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, we've all been close enough to an incandescent light to be like, wow, that's right. a lot of heat. I feel the heat coming off of that. That's very warm. If it was moved close to me, I would be really warm. In fact, that's a great way to do it. Set all this stuff up at your desk, and then you'll be like, I'm too warm. I'm going to go turn down the thermostat. There you go, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> what about for someone in a warm weather climate? And, and you do address this in the book, but someone who, where heating is one of the bigger issues for colder climates or for sure. you know, places in the, sure. in the winter, how can someone really conserve their energy usage? Um, you know, if they're in a tropical climate or during the summer months. Okay. All right. So, um, I mean, this is, this is a pretty long explanation, but <clears throat> there, there, there is uh, a ton of stuff you can do uh, to cool your home. And I would have to say that the number one thing that you can do is like on several sides of your house have enormous, magnificent trees. Just huge, like like crazy giant trees. Um, and and I'm going to guess that most people listening to this don't have that option. But um, try this. The next time you see an incredibly giant tree, whatever kind of tree it is, stand out in the sun for a moment and now go stand under the tree. The thing is is that when it's a crazy giant tree, it's got shade like 150 feet up. And then there's this powerful downdraft that happens and the air just gets colder and colder and colder. Hmm. And then you're kind of like, when you're standing underneath this crazy giant tree, it's like this cold air fountain is just pouring on you. And I wouldn't be surprised if you and everybody listening to this has experienced this exact thing. Mm -hmm like just standing under an, an incredibly massive tree on a hot day and being like, this is very comfortable here. This is even a little too cold. So that's why I'm saying like, oh, uh, the best thing to do is to have these giant trees around your house. And it's kind of like, well, okay, that might take a few years. <laughs> we planted the tree. It said it's going to get to be crazy big. <clears throat> but this week it's kind of like, you know, not so big. So what do we do until, you know, and it's like, I have a list of 20 things. Um, uh, I would say that, that one of the things that you can do is like, you probably have an Eve on your house. Well, first of all, plant lots of trees and all kinds of stuff all around your house as much as you can, yes. because that is going to cool your house a good 15 degrees just by having all of that around your house. Um, the, the, the next thing is, is I'm going to, in fact, I'm going to do just one more thing and then I'm going to kind of switch gears a little bit. I'm going to do one more thing. Sure. You have, you have an Eve on your house. I'm sure you've seen those things where it looks like they're made out of bamboo slats and it's like these blinds that you roll down and it makes it so that it casts a shadow on your wall. That thing, wherever the sun is shining, if you put some of those down, it will cool the exterior of your house dramatically. But now I'm going to abuse this moment in time to talk about uh, a design I made for a home. 
Yes, I do want to talk about this for sure. Uh, <laughs> okay, so you know where I'm going yeah, with this. Yeah, yeah. All right. I made an above ground home, and I have to say that because it has a thick earthen roof, and there are people that point at it and they mistakenly say underground. It is not underground. It is completely and thoroughly above ground, but it does have a thick earthen roof. And it has, we call it an umbrella. It's a membrane that surrounds the house, and so it holds hundreds of tons of soil underneath the umbrella next to the house, keeping it dry. And then there's a magical property to this dirt. It, it is both insulative and conductive of heat, but its heat conductivity is very slow. It uses, so here in Montana, but I'm, you know, we're going to talk about a tropical climate in a moment. But here in Montana, we use the heat from the summer to heat the house through the winter. Therefore, home heat with zero carbon footprint. There's no energy whatsoever that's used. Absolutely zero. And if you want to have it work in conjunction with passive solar, you can because it totally erases all of the problems of passive solar. It's so... So this annualized thermal inertia, this is what we call it, annualized thermal inertia, uh, when working with passive solar, they're like besties for life. All right. Now let's go back to the tropical climate. And it's kind of like, okay, in your tropical climate, you tend to have the monsoon season, which is not cold, but cool. And, uh, and so basically, this structure is going to um, then exude some of the heat that came during the warmer time of the year. So it'll be warmer on the inside. That's doing the thing like it does in Montana. You know, we're going to heat you in the winter with the heat from the summer. But the amazing thing is, and this is where it's uh, some benefit here, but great benefit in your tropical area, is that when you get to the hot season, and it's so hot, then it absorbs the heat from the room, making the room feel very cool. So here, when it's 95 degrees, we go inside one of these structures, and we call them a wafati. We go into a wafati, and it feels like 75 or so. It feels much cooler. The mass is being charged with the heat from the summer, thus making the room quite cool. Yeah, that's um, what I really like about the book is that you're, you know, I think we talked about this before we started recording, but you're you're talking about moving beyond sustainability into resilience, like weaning people off kind of their industrialized views, their views of just consuming as much as possible, and really kind of taking matters into their own their own hands. Um, so, what is your ideal world, or even a practical world? And are you are you hopeful? Are you hopeful that people will be able to to reach that, or that we'll be able to get? There? Um, first, I want to say that I've always felt a little weird about the word sustainable, but let's just be clear that when we start talking about sustainability, it means barely not dead, right? I mean, is that fair? Like, oh, what I wish I was, I wish I was barely not dead, just on the edge of being dead, but still alive. That's what I'm shooting for. Um, and I kind of feel like, so everybody's like, oh, it's all about sustainability. And I kind of feel like, um, 
wow, that's kind of a weak ass goal there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can we shoot for something a little bit better? <laughs> but I kind of feel like, like, let's say somebody works at a job and they're miserable. And uh, misery can come in many flavors, but I'm sure that it's easy to imagine somebody who goes to a job where they're perpetually frustrated and they get paid, they pay their bills, they go to the mall, they go home, they watch TV, repeat until dead. That this is kind of the life they've signed up for and it's, it's not a happy thing. I like to think that I wish to paint for them a picture and give them a collection of strategies such that when they go to work, they realize they don't have to go to work anymore, but that going to this job is now part of their strategy for retiring early right. and, and having a more luxuriant, magnificent, beautiful life. And in fact, you know, I hope that they can have a more luxuriant life right away. But part of the thing, and the thing I think that you might be asking about <clears throat> is like what's going to be a, a more uh, a brighter future for the reader. And I had a hard time explaining this for, for decades, and then I came up with this thing. I just wrote it one day. I just felt the urge to write it. And so I wrote the story of Ferd and Gert. <laughs> and so Ferd has a job. That's kind of like this guy that we're talking about, right? You know, repeat until dead. And, right. and, I'm, and then I made up this, this fictitious person, Gert, and I get asked far too many questions about Gert. But, <laughs> but Gert um, has a small home and a few acres. And it's all paid for. And she has a magnificent garden. Um, Gert stopped working. She basically retired. Um, she's got a little money in the bank, but she doesn't really have expenses anymore. And uh, uh, the garden that she has is enough to feed two or three people. And so, you know, she has some neighbors that kind of buy some of her excess and some of it she gives away. But, um, and, and then she kind of has like a couple of hobbies that bring in a little bit of money here and there. And so basically, in the example, Ferd makes something like $50,000 a year doing his job, but he has a mortgage to pay and a car payment to pay. And all of his food is either through the grocery store or through restaurants. And he has all the other typical expenses that you would expect. <clears throat> in the meantime, Gert doesn't have a mortgage. She doesn't have a car payment. She does own a pickup truck. And I want to, if you remind me, I'll come back to the pickup truck. Okay. Um, but uh, she uh, has an income every year of about $7,000. It's so small, she doesn't even have to pay taxes on it. And uh, so she doesn't even have to file taxes. I mean, how much do you enjoy filing taxes? Oh, how much do you enjoy like all that paperwork? And Gert, Gert doesn't have to do it. She doesn't earn enough to pay taxes. Um, maybe she filled up the paperwork. They'd give her money for being impoverished. <laughs> but 
But the thing is, is that uh, she doesn't have rent. She doesn't have mortgage. She doesn't have a car payment. She doesn't have any of those things. And, um, and she's got all this food, this, this abundance of food, this mountain of food. And, and so um, I, I, the, the, the story is, is that what do you want to do when you retire? And one possible scenario is Gert's scenario. Right. And it's kind of like, okay, so can we get a shortcut there? The other thing, the other point that I make is like, I refer to Gert as a permaculture millionaire because in this fiction that I made up, and, and let me just remind everybody, Mr. Rogers said it was okay for me to do that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's great to make believe. That's what he kept telling me. All right. So I made this up. I give Gert a million dollars. There you go, Gert. Buy whatever you want. She changes nothing. Nothing in her life changes. Everything is what she wants. She doesn't even want to travel. She loves her gardens. And, of course, I write this from the perspective of somebody who's bonkers about gardening. But <clears throat> so uh, is it fair to call Gert a permaculture millionaire? I've given her a million dollars. And so she went out and she bought everything that she wanted with a million dollars which was exactly what she already has. Yeah. Now, as, as one other thought experiment, let's suppose that we're looking at like, oh, no, the world's about to end. Golly gee willikers, I, I wish Ferd was better prepared, but he's not. Here, Ferd, here's a million dollars. You have like two weeks to prepare for the upcoming whatever's going to happen. And, uh, you know, so that you're prepared. How is how's Ferd going to do compared to Gert? I think that if we gave Ferd a million dollars and a whole year to prepare, then he still, he would burn through the million dollars in less than six months. And he still would be in a mess. He'd still be in a pickle. Mm -hmm. So I kind of advocate that Gert is a wise destination. I'm not saying Gert's the only destination and, and, it, and there's many schools of thought under the permaculture umbrella, but I think that the whole thing about Gert is my favorite permaculture destination. Okay. Should we talk about the truck? Yep. I was, I have it written down. <laughs> All right. Um, <clears throat> the average American could go out right now and buy a Tesla and and their, their carbon footprint is 30 tons. And so buying a Tesla will reduce your carbon footprint by two tons. Now, I'm going to give Gert a gas-guzzling truck. Oh, it's, it gets terrible mileage. Oh, it's just, it's just awful. But, and I, and I tell Gert, you get to go to town every day. You can drive and you can tool around town and, uh, you know, you can uh, uh, ride the strip. You can go drag racing in your pickup, whatever you want to do. You can do all of that stuff. But Gert goes into town twice a year just for some entertainment, pick up a couple of things, visit some people. Now, because Gert 
put so few miles on her truck, on her gas-guzzling truck. That gas-guzzling truck now has a smaller carbon footprint than the average American's Tesla. Hmm. Now, that's that has to do with the fact that Gert loves where she is right, yeah. and what she's doing. And it does seem like, as we're trying to solve global problems, let's at least think about Gert. You know, I'm not saying, hey, everybody, go be Gert. But what I am saying is, is it's like, Gert's kind of got it going on. Let's not have the conversation just be about the Teslas. Let's also talk about Gert a little bit. Right. And the illustration you create, she's a lot happier um, doing already what she loves. Uh, you know, well, no desire to travel, going to town, all that. Well, let's look at Ferd and Ferd's food systems. I mean, let's pretend that all of Ferd's food is free. Like he goes to a restaurant and it's all free. And he goes to a grocery store and it's all free. He still has to get to the restaurant and get to the grocery store. Mm -hmm. And so, and then plus, at, whether it's at the grocery store or at the restaurant, he has to wait. I mean, if he's going to the grocery store, he uh, goes and gets all of his stuff, and then he has to wait to check out. He doesn't have to wait very long, but there is some wait there. And it does take some time to go and get all the groceries and put them in his cart. Fair? Yeah. Fair. Now, let's, let's take him to the restaurant. He goes to the restaurant, and uh, he orders some food. He sits down. He orders some food. Uh, was he there an hour? Did it, you know... Because he had to tell them what he wanted to eat, and they had to bring it, and then he had to eat it, and then, then he had to get the bill, and he had to square up, although the bill was free. But let's say, you know, he <laughs> still has to run the card or something. I mean, they're still going to get paid. Whatever it was, it took an hour. And then he has to drive home still. And he, still, he, he did drive there. So he would drive to the grocery store, drive to the restaurant. So that's going to be a petroleum footprint as well as a carbon footprint. And it took a certain amount of time for every meal. But now Gert also gets all her food for free. And it does take her time. Like she's going to spend a couple of weeks in the fall canning or drying food, you know? And so she's going to be chopping things and stuff like that. So there's going to be some time in her food prep. Maybe time in her food prep that Ferd didn't have to do because, but, but for did have to wait. All right. <clears throat> I guess the point I'm trying to make now is that um, there's not only money, but there's also a lot of time that goes into feeding for that doesn't go into Gert. Gert still has to do the time, but she doesn't, she doesn't have to spend the money. It's the food is all basically in a way it's free. And which is another thing too, is to talk about in a, permaculture garden the promise is that you have all of your food and you didn't have to do any work except harvest now of course there was work in setting it up but we're looking at gert when she is uh um gotten to gertitude we're looking at her at a certain state we're looking at her after her gardens are well established and they're permaculture gardens and they're pumping out all kinds of food so all right. And, and there are ways to getting to Gert. Like it's, that's her day job. But you kind of explain how someone can get to, I 
guess Gerda too. It's, it doesn't right. happen overnight. It's a process, but it's just she's using her time for something else versus working a job that, let's say in Ferd's case, sure. he hates. Ferd is going to spend probably 10 to 15 hours a week getting himself fed. Yeah. And and Gert is going to spend that same amount of time every week, but Gert does spend more time with canning and drying food in the fall to put it away. So in a way, you're right, it's her job. But the amount of time she puts into that is less than the amount of time Ferd spends commuting to his job. Gotcha. Now, now Gert's days are filled with what Gert thinks are fun to do and her hobbies. And on top of that, um, I think it's easy to say that her carbon footprint is hovering near zero, not less than zero. Yeah, she's probably in the, you know, one of the higher levels of the, the Wheaton eco scale. Yes, yes, definitely. So, uh, you know, speaking about that, like where, so you, you have what's called Wheaton Labs. So essentially you're putting a lot of these permaculture practices to test. What can you explain exactly what you do there or how it runs or how you're really applying a lot of these permaculture um, practices? Well, we've been here six years okay. and uh, and the name comes from the whole idea of like there was Bill Nye, the science guy, and he had Nye laboratories. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of thought it'd be fun to, you know, do something similar. But uh, uh, we have I think we have uh, nine people here now. And um, uh, all of them, I'm trying to think, is it all? All of them except one, uh, well, and me, are, are in the uh, permaculture boot camp. And so basically we say uh, learn permaculture through a little hard work. And so, yes, they're conducting experiments and they're doing, you know, the, they're doing the work. They're planting seeds. They're growing food, they're building hugelkultur beds, they're building wafatis, they're, uh, I mean, you know, we've got stuff about rocket mass heaters and uh, all kinds of experiments. And, going and on how big constantly. is the area? We have 200 acres. Oh, wow. okay. Yeah. And uh, um, so a lot of perennial food systems, we start a lot of trees from seed. And so it takes a little bit longer for us to enjoy the fruit. Um, so, but we have a lot of trees, a lot of fruit trees. Oh man, that's a lot of fruit trees, but they're all so small right now because <laughs> we started them from seed. Um, and, uh, we've got a lot of philosophies about how it's better to start from seed than to transplant. Mm -hmm. Taproot and stuff. Uh, yes, yes. Taproot stuff. Um, uh, I'd... You're asking me, like, what all are we doing here? What all do we do here? Um, uh, I guess these are people. In fact, uh, uh, somebody said it's a cult. And it's kind of like, well, yeah, I guess so. It's a gardening cult. You know, uh, you come and you hang out and do a lot of gardening. Um, I, the other kind of cult, they're all like, let's, let's do some more praying, huh? Well, that'd be great, wouldn't it? And uh, we're like, let's do some more gardening, huh? This, that'd be great, wouldn't it? That sounds pretty pretty harmless in the realm of cults. Well, yeah, you know, I I think so, but uh, uh, I I I kind of feel like uh, uh, at first I thought we're not a cult. What are you talking about? And then I kind of thought, hey, maybe we are. <laughs> Putting the cult 
in permaculture. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I don't, I really don't care. Um, uh, let people think that we're, in fact, I kind of feel like, uh, if people go around and start saying, Oh, they got a cult over there kind of keeps the stupid people away. Doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a good way to get the name out there. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I think uh, people of a little more intellect are going to be like, uh, you're, that's just ridiculous. That's yeah, just, dig a little deeper. So, uh, yeah, I, I've, I heard it a couple times where they're like, oh, it's that cult. And it's kind of like, uh, all right. Uh, I, I don't think there's uh, there's there's no uh, religious services here of any kind that I know of. And no one claiming that they could talk to God or anything. So what I think is the most interesting is that you're constantly experimenting. And that even you who are so deep yes. into this is still learning. Uh, I think that's oh, a big, yeah, and, and even still, you know, admitting that you're still learning. Like there are a lot of people who would say, "Oh, I'm the expert in this. I'm this." So that's what I think is the most intriguing thing about like how what I read about about Wheaton Labs and how you have it set up is that hey, we are there's no bad um, ideas, and we're just kind of trying to evolve to this certain you know level ten or even higher of the uh, if I could use the Wheaton eco scale again. Well, uh, I mean, eventually Sepulcher will die. And uh, I, I like to think that uh, part of what we're doing is to hopefully grow the future leadership of permaculture. Um, I hope that someday uh, we will do 10 times more than Sep has ever done. And, uh, and, and then I hope that, it'll, that the people that are here uh, – as permanent residents will, will be the people that come up with the, the future innovations. So we seem to attract people that are very keen on, on experimentation. So um, one of the guys uh, that's here, Josiah, he did a lot of work last summer on a, a solar glass recycler. We, we, we called it phlegm for the Fresnel lens glass melter. Oh, wow. <laughs> The phlegm. <laughs> so, but uh, but he, he got to the point where we were able to melt glass. It just wow. wasn't very consistently. And uh, um, eventually the days got longer so that it's kind of like, okay, we're going to circle back to that one this year and uh, do some more experiments. You were melting glass just through solar power? Yes. Holy yeah. Cow. How does that work? Uh, a Fresnel lens. Are you familiar with a Fresnel lens? No, I'm not. It's flat. But it's got all these concentric circles in it. And, and the shape of it is like, let's say you had a, a magnifying glass that was three feet in diameter. Only, and so it has the power of that, but it's compressed down to a flat surface. Oh, okay. I'm looking at it. Yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting shape that gets pressed into the material to make it act like a a giant magnifying glass. So now we've got this giant magnifying glass and we're going to focus the sun onto a plate full of broken glass. And we're using a ceramic tray and because uh, the ceramic tray can tolerate temperatures of 3000 degrees, whereas the glass will melt at a temperature of 1400. But, you know, what if we could get to the point that, that uh, um, every household could have one of these? So then you get your glass that you want to recycle. Because here in Missoula, they, they currently do not recycle glass. 
And so it's kind of like, it would be great to be able to make a bunch of glass tiles or glass building blocks or whatever. There's all kinds of things that we can like make a form for and stick it in this thing. And then we come back at the end of the day and it's like, there's another brick. Yeah. You know, there's, another, there's another glass tile, you know, <laughs> all kinds of stuff we could do. Um, but of course we need to perfect this and, uh, it's a little dicey cause you're trying to get the temperature to exceed 1400 degrees sure. Fahrenheit. And it's like your oven generally doesn't go above 550 unless it's in self-cleaning mode. And that self-cleaning mode that makes all the ash on the inside, that's 900 degrees. And we want to go to like 2000, but see, we're kind of the perfect place to do this because we do so much work with rocket mass heaters that we already have a lot of these high temp insulative materials here. So it's like, okay, let's take this high temp insulative material, slap on a Fresnel lens, get the focus to hit this broken glass, and let's see if we can make a glass tile. See, that's the interesting stuff to me. That's the fact that you guys are completely, you know, building upon things, iterating, reiterating on things. Um, you know, whether or not people think you're a cult, so be it. But the fact that, like, <laughs> but honestly, like the fact that you are, you know, potentially could change the entire recycling system in that town and elsewhere. Um, and that's probably just one aspect of what you're building on. I think that's the, that's the really cool part. I, I think that we are, um, we have, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. And everybody that's listening is going to think I'm full of shit. <laughs> go for uh, it. I, I think we have the cure for cancer and, and I know it's crazy. It's, but basically I've got this theory that cancer comes from carcinogens. Oh, that's that's basically <laughs> it. I just kind of think like, if you take the carcinogens away, the cancer goes away. I know that's just nuts. It's just nuts. So part of what we've done, like with the Wafati where we've, you know, I've talked earlier about the Wafati is we've built the entire structure using no glue of any kind and no Portland cement, no cement of any kind. There's no glue, no cement, no paint, zero paint, none. It's all uh, uh, logs and um, uh, we've, we're using mud. We basically are, it's called cob, uh, is a more formal term for it, but uh, some people might think of it as adobe but, uh, and we are using straw bales for insulation at some spots. Um, but the, the big thing is, is that everything is a totally natural and organic material. And uh, uh, so <clears throat> I believe that we could take somebody, once we've got all our systems in place, and then we're growing all our food in polycultures. And so, um, and I, I wrote about it in the book a little bit. Um, where I want to grow all food in a very rich soil and in a polyculture. So like with uh, plants where they can mingle their roots with uh, other species of plants. Mm -hmm. I think that that's critical to make a food that contains nutrition that we've lost over the last couple hundred years. Right. Not this agricultural so, system. So um, I believe that if a person lives in this structure, which I believe is going to have fewer, dramatically fewer of the carcinogens, both known carcinogens and unknown carcinogens. Mm -hmm. And then they eat the food that we grow here, which is going to be from the rich soil and polycultures. I believe that their cancer will simply go away. 
I believe that. Now, we got tests to do, and those are some big, big tests, but we're already getting people that are like impatient and they're like, you know, cure my cancer. <laughs> and it's kind of like, oh, we're a long way away from doing that just yet. But uh, we do have uh, uh, some of the people that are in the uh, permaculture boot camp are people with some pretty powerful chemical sensitivities. And so they can live here, whereas they can't live almost anywhere else. So we've got some of those people here and, um, and all of them are moving all of our experiments forward. And a lot of them have their own experiments that they want to do because, I mean, that's how they're wired. That's why they're here. They're into that. Gotcha. And it's one of those things that, again, people, you don't have to live, you know, a luxuriant life or a less luxuriant life. Um, yeah, you know, we're, we're talking over zoom. You're obviously are connected in that way. Like it's just oh, yeah. a different way of living, but it's not less, um, you know, uh, less luxury. I mean, if you think about your 30 ton carbon footprint and you're like, I'm going to at least not be part of the problem. I'm going to, I'm going to erase my 30 ton carbon footprint. Then, um, if you sit down and think about it, I think a lot of people have a hard time getting past erasing two tons. It's, mm -hmm. it's like they can't, it's like, I still got to drive to work mm -hmm. and I still got to buy my food and I still got to. So it's like, there's some places where it's really, really hard. But, and then the other thing is, is like, I'm willing to turn the temperature, the thermostat in my house down a little bit, but I can't go, you know, to any extremes. And I kind of feel like the same time. Now let me teach you some stuff. Let me just give you some stuff. That's just, it's already there in your head, just on the edge of your knowing it. And all I'm going to do is give it a little bump. I'm going to connect a couple of dots and presto. I'm going to, you're suddenly, your brain is full of recipes. So you can not only eliminate your own 30 ton carbon footprint easily and put more money in your pocket and have more luxury, but you can even possibly start down the road of mitigating the footprints of several other people. Right. So this is where we get the concept of having a negative carbon footprint. You've wiped out your 30 tons and then you've, uh, you've also knocked out another 30 tons. Ta-da! <laughs> I, I mean, before you read my book, yeah, I mean, I imagine you knew about the 30 tons. Did you know about the 30 tons I before did. you read my book? Yes, I did. Okay. All right. Before reading my book, how many tons, like, and if somebody came to you and said, Brian, can you give me advice on how to lower my carbon footprint? You would say, why, yes, I can. I'm full of knowledge on this topic. I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but I'm quite knowledgeable. Am I wrong? Uh, yeah, I'd probably say something to that effect. <laughs> okay. Now, the recipe that you give them before reading my book, how many tons do you think they could have knocked off of their carbon footprint? I would say maybe, maybe one ton. I'll give myself one. Okay. Time. All right. All right. Now you've read my book and then you have that same conversation 
how many tons can you talk to them about? I think just by telling them, I think probably, well, we'll say a hundred, say a hundred tons, probably hundred tons. I would say that that's pretty fair. And that's not even a very long conversation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was in yeah. an elevator ride. Yeah, it's pretty easy. And so it's kind of like, um, uh, it's, it, and, and it's like all this stuff, you already knew it. It was all in your head already, mm -hmm. but you just, it's just like the dots hadn't been connected. And so that's what this book is all about. It's, it's like, and, and you know what, if Al Gore is going to ever make another movie, maybe he can say, these are his ideas. I'm totally cool with that. Say they're your ideas. That's fine. You know, that's great. Um, but I know that like Leonardo DiCaprio came out with a movie and, and his ideas were just as weak. Really? There you go, Leo. Here's a whole book. Read this book. Pretend they're your ideas. All the women will swoon. Yes. So, um, uh, uh, David Attenborough had a movie. David Letterman had a movie. Oh man, this carbon oh. footprint stuff, huh? man <laughs> uh, let's give you a couple of ideas here and uh and it's like i went out and i talked to some people about it and i hope we can fix things and it's like uh and and it does seem like it's one of those things where the first thing people want to do is like they better fix this stuff well who the hell is they they is you 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 are they that's so I, I, I kind of, I, I desperately need to get this book into the brains of a hundred million people. And, um, I'm, I'm kind of going a little stir crazy. Uh, I've, I've reached, I've sold the book to 20, sold 20,000 copies so far. Oh, wow. And, and nice. we're just, we're getting started. And for a lot of authors, it's like 20,000, man, that is like, I've, I printed, I hear from so many authors like, I printed 6,000 copies five years ago yeah. <laughs> and I still, I, one gal was telling me that she's got a, in her house, she's got a couch, which is made out of the boxes that the books are in that oh. haven't sold yet. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like 20,000. Yeah, so incredible. yeah, I'm thinking like, yeah, 20,000 is good, but, but we got to get it to a hundred million because we got to, you know, fix all the things. Well, how how can we help? How can we get it? To, where can people buy a copy of? Uh, where can people buy a copy of building a better world in your backyard? Well, I've tried to make it super duper sweet for uh, people uh, uh, to buy them by the dozen. Like that's, I kind of feel like that's a sweet spot. But if you're going to be like, oh, I don't know, it's enough, but <laughs> I don't think I'm ready to get a dozen of them. That, that's cool. We sell them singly too. But permies.com. So people that are bonkers about permaculture refer to themselves as permies. So permies.com, P-E-R-M-I-E-S.com slash B-W-B for Better World Book. And okay. then there you can buy one copy. You can buy a dozen. Uh, you can buy more than a dozen. You can buy lots. And uh, we have it. The audiobook I think, was extremely well done. It was done by a professional, and it turned out great um i think that the the everything about the book 
we we I mean we did a Kickstarter, and we ended up being one of the most highly funded Kickstarters of all of of all time for uh, nonfiction books for this for the area of nonfiction books. We're like we made the the page one, you know, uh, of their list, and so we did everything first class. We did. I think the layout of the book is great uh, for the printed book. The ebook, I think, is great. The audiobook is, I, I think, is great. Everybody I've, I've heard back from has been telling me it's, it looks great. It's all, all well done. Um, I, uh, I know that we spent an extra year on the book polishing every sentence. And uh, so that way it's an easy read. It's, uh, we've, we've run it by hundreds of reviewers and uh, dozens of editors to get it so that it is very easy to read. Yeah. Um, okay. Because we kept telling ourselves, this is not a book that we're going to, that's only a couple thousand people are going to read it. We we're going to do everything we can to get a hundred million people to read it. And the number one thing is they need it to be easy to read, not too big and, um, and jam packed. And so I, I, and, and then the other thing is our primary audience is people who did not buy the book. We're thinking that the primary audience oh, is yeah, sure. people who were given a book by a friend. That's who our number one audience is. And so I'm not sure if it felt that way to you at all when you were reading it, but we were kind of thinking about um, there were some subtle differences that we did to try to make it so that um, it's like, let's pretend whoever got this book was not shopping for a book like this. They were, they, in fact, they're most likely not an environmentalist. They don't care about the environment. Hmm. And so we wrote the book for, I mean, when we talk about the Wheaton Ecoscale, like an hour ago, there's 6 billion people at level zero, right? Sure, that's going to be most. So, yeah. so there's 1 billion people at level one. So it's like, let's write this for the people at level zero. Let's write for this for people that don't care about the environment. I mean, people that do care about the environment will read it too, but let's let's make it for the people that don't right and what do they care about and um and and so we we did a, a strong focus on that so they care about a life that's more luxuriant they care about saving money um i do believe we talked for a little bit about you know what is a septic tank and what is a sewage treatment plant and providing alternatives to that yeah and so we talked about the concept of well you don't want to drink poop kool-aid do you and so, but if your septic tank is not working so good, or if you have a really horrible outhouse and you're out in the country and you have a well, mm, now you know why, why there's such a thing as a sewage treatment plant. It's like, <laughs> well, everybody's kind of complaining about the flavor of the water. <laughs> so we uh, came up with a whole different way of doing it. And we need you to not use your septic tank anymore. <laughs> so... Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, it's one of those things like you can take, it's one of those things that you can take little bits and pieces of. You don't have to enact the entire book tomorrow. You can enact little parts Correct. of it. 
Um, right. You know, if the thing like, hey, not not using soap scares you off, then maybe wean yourself from it or, or, or use it just a little bit more mindfully or just just be aware of what you're doing and aware of how you can change if you want to and if you think it's appropriate to live a more luxurious life. See, I think that the poolist thing, and that's what they call the no soap and shampoo in the shower thing. It's called poolist. And I didn't make up the word. I, I just, I wish I'd made up the word because it's an awesome word. Because <laughs> you tell somebody like, oh, have you tried going poolist? And, and it's, they're like, that sounds like a way to gain a lot of weight. <laughs> you know? So I didn't make up the word. Somebody else did. And I just think it's a wonderful word. But I think it's a great poster child for the book. Because when you first hear about it, it sounds kind of crazy. It's like no one would ever do that. And if you did, you would stink. And it's like, actually, people reporting that you stink less doing this. And your hair is thicker and more luxuriant. And your skin is better. Everything. It's like the benefits are tremendous. So why not start off, like, try one shower just once? Yep. Yeah. And, and how did it go? Now, of course, because you're going to have this oily residue in your hair from the shampoo, it's going to be funky for a few days until you get that all out. I think, especially if, if you're right now quarantined, what a great time to try this out for a week. Why not? Yeah, just it's a whole week. Yeah, yeah. Use, don't use any... So the, the, the thing is, is that it's like the reason why I think it's a great poster child from the book is because it may be the, the simplest possible thing that you could do in the book, but you end up spending less money because you're not buying shampoo anymore, right? And all the other related products. <clears throat> you're not buying that stuff anymore. So you save money. Less toxicity. That stuff's kind of toxic. I mean, generally, you're not going to try and drink it or anything. And there's a reason for that. But in, in fact, well, anyway, I could go on about the toxicity of it, but let's just say less toxicity. And a lot of people end up having ailments just mysteriously go away after the transition. So uh, the next thing is, is that it dramatically reduces the amount of hot water you use. Save, so therefore, saves you even more money and you're using less power, and it's the power plant which has all of the problems on the other end of the wire. And I think that's another thing we kind of talk about in the book is that a lot of people are like, oh, my power is hydro, so it's perfectly clean. So we have a whole paragraph dedicated to the environmental disaster that's behind hydro. Yep. And, and it is a Simon, nightmare. Yeah. Uh, I mean, when you, it's like, if you start studying the environmental disaster behind hydropower, I think you might barf and, and uh, you might, you might choose to sacrifice short term until you can find alternative solutions. Then you start talking about solar and you start talking about wind power and those have skeletons in the closet too. They are not perfect. Really the best thing that you can do is to use less power, but I want, I don't want you to sacrifice. I want to provide you with a recipe so your life is even more luxuriant with more money in your pocket. And it just so happens to reduce the environmental disaster that's happening on the other end of that wire. 
I love it. It's the best way to connect everyone, um, uh, to not scare people off. Those people in position, you know, level zero, level one. Um, Paul, I, I want to thank you so much for your time. And we've talked about a lot. Um, and the book talks about even more, but I want to plug it again, permies.com, because it is such a, it is such a fascinating read. And there's a lot of stuff, like I'm an apartment dweller. There's a lot of stuff that I can do right now, especially during COVID. Um, that can are interesting ways of saving money, saving energy, and helping the environment. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate everything. Thanks for having me, Brian. It's always a pleasure to infect more brains with my stuff. Thanks for joining. If you liked that episode, feel free to rate, view, and subscribe. That actually really helps. If you haven't seen it yet, take a look at the accompanying blog. Don't forget your boots.com, where you can read more and see photos for all the interviews. Until next time. Take care.